Exodus 36. We'll take a step back before we move forward. Um, Doug covered 35 pretty in-depth and, and dabbled in 36 last week. And as I was preparing to do 37 through 39, I realized that there was no new content in those three chapters. So I'm going to steal a little bit of Doug's message to, to jump in uh, this evening so that we have some place to start and some place to end, uh, if you guys don't mind. Um, but yeah, we're, we're almost done Exodus. So for those of you that were here the first Wednesday night that we started Exodus, and maybe even the first Tuesday night that we started Genesis, that was a long time ago. And we're, we're who knows, Chris, do we know where we're going next? We don't know yet, I don't think. No, we don't know yet. <laughs> Come anyway. Maybe we'll have a, a surprise every Wednesday night. That's why everybody's got to come out. Um, but yeah, it's been, a, it's been a, a crazy journey through Exodus. I don't think I've ever gone this in-depth. And the stuff that we've been able to glean from this text has been life-changing, I think. Um, I mean, every, every book of the Bible can change your life if you study it in-depth. But oftentimes we, we know the story of Charlton Heston you know, in the Bible, when we watch the movie of the Ten Commandments, but we don't realize how much of what we know to be um, Christianity even is traced back all the way to the Exodus. You know, a lot of the things that we know and understand about our own faith can be traced back to the beginning. And it's cool to start with that. Um, So yeah, we'll pick up actually at the end of 35, and this is going to be a sprint up until chapter 40, and then uh, we'll do chapter 40 next week. So let me just say a quick prayer again. Thank you, Lord. I pray that you would give me clarity of mind and speech, and thank you for those that have come out tonight. I pray that uh, your word would accomplish its purpose in our life. In Jesus' name, amen. So Doug did a great job of of kind of summarizing the different articles that we've covered uh, over the last 10 chapters, beginning in chapter 26 when God announced, I'm sorry, 25 when God announced that I'm going to have the people make a sanctuary for me so that I can dwell. And then for 10 chapters, we went over in, in uh, painstaking detail what those elements were going to be, the structures that were going to be made, the utensils, uh, the platforms that were going to be used for worship, how they should be uh, created and such. So um, 30, the second half of 36 and then 37, 38, 39 basically just say, and they made, and they, they exact tell you exactly what they made for word for word, exactly what we've already covered. So, um, but there are some key points that we'll look at um, that it, it's important to see why they restate all these things. And it, it, they can be found at the end of chapter 35 and the beginning of chapter 36, which is kind of why I want to, uh, to focus in on that to start with so that we can see the completion of all these things and see how they were able to complete it. Um, so let's begin in verse 30 of chapter 35. Just really quick, it says, the, Then Moses said to the people of Israel, See, the Lord has called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and he has filled him with the Spirit of God, with skill, with intelligence, with knowledge, and with all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold and silver and bronze, in cutting stones for setting, and in carving wood for work in every skilled craft. And he has inspired him to teach both him and Aholiab, the son of Ahisamach, of the tribe of Dan. He has filled them with skill to do every sort of work done by an engraver or by a designer or by an embroiderer in blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen or by a weaver. 
by any sort of workman or skilled designer. Okay, so that's very detailed about what they're able to do. But just to sum it up, he's basically saying that Aholiab and Bazalel can make anything, absolutely anything. Like if you, they're, they're carpenters, they're masons, they're uh, cross-stitchers, you know, like they can do everything. You picture these guys hammering nails and, and doing everything during the day and then sitting on the couch watching TV crocheting at night, making curtains for the temple. You know, like it's crazy when you describe it and we read it and we hear stones and linens and we just kind of forget like what it means. He's saying that God filled them with his spirit, which up to this point, we haven't really seen this kind of language in the, in the Bible. If we really have to look deep and and infer in some text when it talks about the Spirit coming upon somebody and stuff like that. But up to this point, we don't really see God saying that I'm going to fill them with my Spirit. You know what I mean? Like, it, it's, it's a different kind of idea than what we're used to. We see it with Caleb, but that's later on when it says there was a different Spirit in him and things like that. Um, Samson, we see this, the Holy Spirit coming upon him so that he could do mighty things. But this is something so unique, I think, that's happening that we don't want to just gloss over it because... They are being given the ability to construct the place where God's going to live among his people, which we've, we've talked about it a lot in Exodus. The entire purpose of God is to reconnect with the people that rebelled against him and come and live with them again, like it was in the garden. That's what the temple or the tabernacle and then the temple was for, was to have God be able to dwell among a sinful people and not allow the sin to encroach on his holiness, but rather allow his holiness to spread out into the camp and change the the way that people lived. So, you know, we look at these things and they're very detailed and we can forget the overall purpose for why it's so meticulous. But I just find it really interesting. Not only did they know how to do these things, but God anointed them by his spirit to teach others to do the same things. There are a lot of people who have an incredible skill and it just comes natural. But if you ask them how, to do it, they'll be like, I'll just do it myself. You know, I can, people have asked me to teach them how to play guitar and I, I refuse one because I don't have patience and God's working on me about that. But two is that if I taught somebody how to play guitar, they'd be learning it the wrong way because I didn't learn it by instruction. I just kind of picked it up and, and through trial and error learned. And a lot of people have those kinds of skills, but it's, it's hard when you find someone who's naturally gifted, but also able to teach. So that's why we see the Spirit of God is definitely involved here. Um, you know, there's a lot of people that, like I said, they, they would rather do it themselves because trying to explain it is too difficult and it'll take too much time. So I'll just do that. You go like get lemonade or something. You know, like people, I've, I'm usually the guy that's getting the lemonade because I'm not good with my hands at all. And I mistakenly, or I misled my wife into thinking that I was handy because when we met, I was working as a gopher on a construction at the Calvary Chapel in Philly had my hard hat on, and she's like, man, this is a strapping guy. He can fix the toilet when it's leaking and stuff like that. And then she found out that I'm a musician, and all things went out the window, and, and, and a theater person and stuff. So I can't. Like, it's not, I'm not gifted in that way. Um, when we were newly married and we got our condo, I was supposed to, ha- I probably told this story before, I was supposed to hang up the curtain rod for the sliding door, and uh, she was out, and I was like, I'll do this. Put my tool belt on for like a hammer and nail because it feels like I'm the guy that does things like that. I overdo it sometimes. And uh, I ended up taking a hole out of the wall. Like I hammered. And when I tell the story, like it's so weird because I literally put like the nail or the screw or whatever. And then the whole chunk of the wall just fell off. It was the weirdest thing. So I I know how to spackle pretty well because I've put my share of holes in walls. And uh, 
So I spackled it up, painted it. She came home and was like, I thought that you were supposed to do this. And I was like, oh, I tried and it didn't work. So she proceeded to do it without a problem while I made her dinner. So that's the dynamic of our marriage, essentially. Um, so anyway, I see we've got to keep it light because we're talking about all this heavy detail of, of linens and things. It's hard. Um, but yeah, think about these guys, Oliab and Basilel, um, being filled with the Spirit of God. Did they know that they were feeling that? Like, did they feel like this like superhero-type change when the presence of God essentially came and lived inside them just so long as they could build a place for him to live on earth? It's weird, you know, because I just, it stands out to me. I can't get past it that it says it filled him with the Spirit of God. And we think of that as a New Testament concept because we don't really see the filling of the Holy Spirit until the New Testament. But it's almost like God did something unique for this point in time so that he could accomplish his work and come and dwell among his people. And that's how much God loves us. And that's how much he wants to be among us, even though these guys just not too long ago were sacrificing to a golden calf and having orgies and weird and stuff. You know, isn't it amazing that God's like, I can't wait to get near those people. <laughs> like, I need this temple built now. You know, it's crazy. So um, I think this is an important aspect. Uh, and this is kind of, this is like the title of the message is the spirit and the work of God. Because oftentimes we think of things being done of the spirit as the spirit just takes over and there's no work involved whatsoever. Or, you know, if you're, if you're putting your hands to it, then you're tainting it, which there are, there's definitely, there, there's the emphasis on the work of man's hands. And we talk about that a lot. Like when it's man trying to strive and sweat and produce something that God does not want produced, then obviously it's an error and it's rebellion against God. But there are times when God fills us with his spirit and then says, go do, you know, we saw, we talk about it too. Jesus saying, now you do this. He doesn't say like, just stand back and watch and I'll just make everything happen. Like he actually gives us everything we need to then go and take the gospel to the nations. Don't you think God could just yell down from heaven and say, hey, I'm God, by the way, the one who created you. And everybody go, oh, whoa, awesome. I know the message. I know the gospel now because it just came from nowhere and it just happens. But he chooses to fill us up as little vessels and send us across the world and spread his, his message that way. It's really interesting. And I think what we can take away from this, even though it, it, it becomes tedious to read through it and stuff like that, is that oftentimes when we are truly filled with the Spirit, that's when the most work gets done. And we are not hindering God's work. Um, there's a quote from David Platt. I like uh, him. He's, he's kind of hard-hitting, and I, I tend to lean towards that. He says, Perhaps the greatest hindrance to the gospel spreading today the people of God trying to do the work of God apart from the power of God. And that we see a lot of that. Um, churches do a lot of stuff because that's what churches do. But oftentimes they leave the spirit out of it. And it looks really good and they have nice structures and there's nice programs and there's things that are happening. But if this, it's like the spirit was left outside. And we see in Revelation where Jesus is standing at the door and knocking. And we use that verse about... Um, unbelievers oftentimes we say, you know, God's standing at the door, Jesus is standing at the door of your heart, let him in. But he's actually talking to a church and he's saying, I'm standing outside wanting to be a part of your church and I'm outside. You know, that's not the way it should be. Um, I think it's Tozer or somebody else. He said, you know, in the, in the early church, if you took the Holy Spirit out of it, 90% of what happened would stop. Sadly, in today's church, oftentimes if you take the Holy Spirit out, 90% would continue to operate because it becomes like a, a machine. And it's very specific how God lays this out. He gives the instruction, and then they do nothing until he says, 
I'm going to put the Spirit on these guys, and they're going to teach you what you need to do, and then you're going to go about it exactly the way I tell you. God is orchestrating the whole thing, but he's using man to accomplish the work. And it's a humbling thing, but it's also a great responsibility, and I'm sure one that these people did not take very lightly. Um, We'll just read a few verses in 36 before we start glossing. Bezalel and Oholiab and every craftsman in whom the Lord has put skill and intelligence to know how to do any work in the construction of the sanctuary shall work in accordance with all that the Lord has commanded. And Moses called Bezalel and Aholiab and every craftsman in whose mind the Lord had put skill. I just love the way this is worded because we don't really see a lot of this kind of language in the Bible. Everyone whose heart stirred him up to come do the work. And they received from Moses all the contribution that the people of Israel had brought for doing the work of the sanctuary. They still kept bringing him free will offerings every morning so that all the craftsmen who were doing every sort of task on the sanctuary came, each from the task that he was doing, and said to Moses, the people bring much more than enough for doing the work that the Lord has commanded us to do. Isn't that incredible? They, they're like, they got to tell them to stop because we, we can't build it as fast as the stuff is coming in, the supplies and things like that. It's just such an incredible picture. And what a sign of God's grace, too, because um, for me, I know that I can sometimes, be, you know, like if I have my golden calf incident, I'm like, oh, walking around, standing there like, oh, well, you know, maybe God will use me someday. This is pretty close afterward, if I'm not mistaken. I mean, I don't have the timeline here, but... All of a sudden, these people are all in, surrendering everything they have, saying, if it's for God's house, it's God's. And they had a proper perspective, which I pray that God would give me because I struggle with this too. It's like, not, God, how much should I give to you, but how much should I keep for myself? You know, asking God, putting it through God's, putting everything in God's hands and then deciding what is my, what do I need to keep? Not, I'm not talking about money. I'm just talking about our lives. Because you can be really, really rich and give hundreds of thousands of dollars to an organization or a good cause or a church, and you have not one ounce more righteousness than anybody else. You know, it doesn't matter how much you're giving, it's with what heart you're giving it. And we see it, it talks about their heart is stirred up to do this. And uh, people oftentimes try to beat people over the head about giving and that kind of stuff, and we don't do that here. Um, we don't have to, I don't think. And not just because we, it's not that there's not need, but we, we believe that the Bible is God's manual for how we ought to live. And that by feeding on it and, and doing his work and allowing the Spirit to work through us, the natural outcome is a liberal church. And liberal, I mean in the, the giving sense, that we're giving because it's better to give than to receive. And that's not just a thing about tithing and that kind of stuff. But it's the idea of putting others ahead of ourselves. And that's what the whole Bible is about. And um, so when we start to focus on money or we start to focus on things that are temporary, you know, God is in the, these people are in the middle of the wilderness. They've been walking around. Somehow God's going to build a house. Because that was what was planned, and he found a way. And it was, you know, plundering the Egyptians, and they had all this extra gold and stuff that they'd never had before. God will always find a way. God's not going to go broke. But what is important for us to apply to our own lives is that idea of allowing the Spirit of God to stir up our hearts to say, what more can I give to God of my life and my treasure and my talent? Because we see, uh, you know, we, it's a fine line. We don't know how much of a holy ab. 
and Bezalel's skill was like taught by their dad. And, you know, obviously by, by distant relationship came from God. And it was just like their natural skill. And how much was God supernaturally giving them that talent? We'll never know. But everything comes from God. So any good gift or any skill that you have ultimately comes from God anyway. So why not use it? And I oftentimes struggle with um, the idea of the things that come naturally to me not really being service to God. Because I put like a trip on myself. Like, well, you know, I can, I play guitar since I was 10. So like, I don't have to like think about like, oh, change that chord now. What, you know, it just comes naturally to me. But who gave me that? You know, how did I get that? How did I learn how to play guitar without really any formal teaching other than God wanted me to learn so that I could then serve the church in that way? You know, but we detach ourselves and we put ourselves in the, in the picture a little bit more than maybe we deserve to be. Whereas doing something like this, it takes a lot more of God's anointing, I think, like direct, because I don't feel like it's something that comes naturally to get up and exposit, is that the word? <laughs> exposit the Bible, you know? Or, you know, Pastor Joe Foch always used to say, it takes way more Holy Spirit to clean the toys in the nursery than it does to teach a Bible study. Because it's that idea of sacrifice, you know? If you ask anybody, like, you want to be the guy that stands in front of everybody and talks for an hour or whatever? Like, most people will be like, yeah, that sounds pretty good. But do you want to be the person that cleans up the barf in the nursery? Like Jackie, <laughs> you know? Like, those are the, the moments when God says, I think God says, I'm going to fill you with the Spirit to do that. Because otherwise, without me, you would never choose to do that on your own. You know what I mean? So um, it's pretty cool. Like, it's just this, this imagery of the heart being stirred up and giving more than is even needed. You know, like I said, God doesn't need anything from us. He doesn't, he chooses to use us, which is remarkable that he would allow us to be his representatives to the world. So let's pick up uh, verse six real quick. Uh, So Moses gave command and word was proclaimed throughout the camp. Let no man or woman do anything more for the contribution of the sanctuary. That's crazy that he actually had to give a command like, stop, it's too much. So the people were restrained from bringing, for the material they had was sufficient to do all the work and more. And all the craftsmen among the workmen made the tabernacle with ten curtains. Now he's gonna. This is where it shifts gears, and it says, "Okay, now we're gonna build things." And it's gonna go painstakingly through all the details of how they built the tabernacle. So we'll just highlight a couple things, if you don't mind. Um, so they go ahead and start making the curtains, the ten curtains for the tabernacle, and and they kind of work. Um, very strategically because of the way it's going to be constructed. They couldn't like make the outside and then be like, oh no, I guess we got to, we forgot to do this. So let's start over. You know, it's very, very organized and strategic. So if you skip down, uh, well, I guess skip to chapter 37. Uh, it says Bezalel made the ark of acacia wood. And Doug did a great job last week of, of the types of, you know, the the altar of incense and the altar of burnt offering and how Christ fulfills all those things. The the fact that there's the table of showbread and Jesus is the bread from heaven, you know, and the, the various types that are presented there. So we're just going to read um, what he made. You know, he also made the table of acacia wood in verse 10 and verse 17. He made the lampstand of pure gold in verse 25. He made the altar of incense of acacia wood. And, uh, you know, if you want to do some homework, you can go through these chapters and then look back, make, see if you can find any discrepancies because I'm pretty sure it's pretty consistent with what they instructed. And at the end, Moses is going to say, good job, everybody. So I'm pretty sure God was pleased too. Um, 
He made the altar of burnt offering, chapter 38. Chapter 38, verse 8, he made the basin of bronze and its stand of bronze from the mirrors of the ministering women who ministered in the entrance of the tent of meeting. We talked about this a couple weeks back, about that, that interesting picture of the bronze laver uh, or the bowl, basically, that the priest would wash himself in and how it was actually the, what, what they used to make that was the, the polished brass that the, the women would use as their mirrors for cosmetic purposes, that they, they gave those things for the work of the, t- of the, uh, the worship of God as he had ordained. Um, and it's really cool because if you look, and it, it talks about how the people just gave their bracelets, and they gave like these little things, little trinkets to the work of God. So, you know, it's not just like, and they gave the 200-pound blocks of gold for the building of the sanctuary. Like, it's just like they gave their, their nose rings and their, their bracelets. Like, I, I don't have much, but here, you know? It makes me think of that, that scene in It's a Wonderful Life. We're getting close to Christmas time, so I can talk about that, right? It's, most of that movie does not revolve around Christmas, so it's good to talk about. Um, when the bank is going to, like, get foreclosed, and he's like, okay, like, how much do you need to get by? Like, don't take all your money out of the bank, or it's going to, you know, go insolvent, or is that the word? Uh, so um, the one lady asked for $17.15 or 50 cents. And he gets so happy because it's like such a small amount. And she's saying like, I'm willing to just take this small amount so that the bank can stay afloat. And everybody else is like, I want all my money out of the bank, blah, blah, blah. And like, he gives her a big kiss and they're all happy. And it just makes me think of that. Like God's like, like if someone's like, oh God, I all, all I have is this, you know, I, I, I can't sing. I can't speak in front of people. I can't teach kids. I can't. And God's like, I know. I didn't choose you because you could. I chose you because you couldn't. You know, I didn't choose noble and wise and, and profound. I chose weak and feeble. And because the glory comes to me and you get to share in the glory as a result. So God is so pleased. You know, the widow and the two mites and those things. When the, the, the people were making a big show and they're blowing little trumpets and stuff, when they would throw their, it says that they gave out of their abundance, which essentially means what they had left over. So God got their leftovers. And then the widow gave all that she had, which was only two mites. And Jesus said, that's what I want. I want that heart. It's the giving heart. It's not the amount. And I just find it throughout all the scripture, it's, it's the heart. You know, it's not the, necessarily the works. And we see works and we talk about good works and they're very important um, for Christians to reflect God's godly character in the way they live their life. But good works without a good heart are filthy rags or without a heart that's been regenerated. Uh, So we skip to verse 21. These are the records of the tabernacle. So he's going to go through. I'm not going to bore you with reading all the amounts, but this is sort of new information because it basically is the sum total of everything that was contributed for the sanctuary. We know what the things were supposed to be made out of, but then he's going to get into like 730 shekels of this and that, and we're not going to read through that. But the if you want to do your own homework, try to figure out, and it, it might tell you in your Bible, they may have done the homework for you if it's a study Bible, but like how much that is in actual like today currency. It's like millions of dollars. It's crazy. Um, but what's interesting about the tabernacle is it was nothing to look at. It was skins on the outside. What was precious was what was inside. That's where all the gold and stuff was. The outside wasn't really flashy and loud and like, wow, look at us in the wilderness. We're the chosen people. It wasn't like that. It was the, it wasn't beauteous or, you know, it wasn't attractive at all. And that's interesting because there's, we know that the tabernacle is a type of Christ. 
And he says, you know, take down this temple and I'll build it up again in three days. He's talking about the temple of his body. But it also says that he had no former comeliness that when you saw him, you would desire him. There was nothing about Jesus physically that would draw you to him because he was a great leader. He wasn't a Saul type where he was a head and shoulders above everybody else. And he was the most handsome, like Absalom with his luxurious hair. You know, there was nothing about Jesus apart from the love in his eyes and the words of grace and love and truth from his lips that drew people to him. It wasn't like, oh, he's from a big family. He's well known. He is blonde and blue eyed amongst all of us dark and dark skinned people. You know, it's interesting that the tabernacle itself was very much like Jesus in that way where the treasure was inside. And we talk about that. He talks about that in the New Testament with the, we are earthen vessels, jars of clay, but we have this treasure within us. It's the glory of God. It's Christ in us, the hope of glory. We're nothing to look at people. Sorry, I don't mean to insult you. I'm insulting that the fingers pointing at me that there's nothing about me that goes, man, I want to be a Christian. Look at that guy. There really isn't. But hopefully there's enough uh, enough Christ radiating out of me that they say, oh, what's, there's something different about that guy, you know? And the temple was very much like that, or the tabernacle, sorry. So let's move into chapter 39. It says that they go on and make the priestly garments from the blue and purple and scarlet yarns. They made finely woven garments for ministering in the holy place. They made the holy garments for Aaron as the Lord had commanded Moses. And he goes on and talks about the ephod, and the onyx stones and all these things, um, which we already looked at. So if you skip down to 32, and we'll, we'll, we'll finish up here. It says, Thus all the work of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting was finished, and the people of Israel did according to all that the Lord had commanded Moses. So they did. That's one of the few times that you can really say, Good job, children of Israel. You did it. <laughs> you know, Oftentimes they're like, Why did you do that? But this time it's like, good job, you did it. Um, but on a side note, we just went through like four chapters. Woohoo! <laughs> we did it. Um, probably the most we've ever covered in one night. Uh, and the people of Israel, I read that already, sorry, verse 33. Then they brought the tabernacle to Moses, the tent and all its utensils, its hooks, its frames, its bars, its pillars, and its bases, the covering of tanned ram's skins, and goat skins, and the veil of the screen, and the ark of the testimony with its poles and the mercy seat, the table with all its utensils, and the bread of the presence. I kind of like that translation. This is the ESV. We say the table of showbread, which I think, I mean, it's a, it's a, a good translation, but this translation gives it a little bit more of what it means. It's like showbread, like it's presenting is the idea. So it's the bread of the presence. And I, I kind of like how that's, it gives you the picture of the bread being offered in the presence of God. The lampstand of pure gold and its lamps with the lamps set and all its utensils and the oil for the light, the golden altar, the anointing oil and the fragrant incense and the screen for the entrance of the tent, the bronze altar and its grating of bronze, its poles and all its utensils, the basin and its stand, the hangings of the cord, its pillars and its bases and the screen for the gate of the court, its cords and its pegs and all its utensils and the service of the tabernacle for the tent of meeting. Making sure they didn't leave anything behind, apparently. Um, the finely worked garments for ministering in the holy place, the holy garments for Aaron the priest, and the garments for his sons for their service as priests. According to all that the Lord had commanded Moses, so the people of Israel had done all the work. And Moses saw all the work, and behold, they had done it. 
as the Lord had commanded, so they had done it. Then Moses blessed them. And this kind of harkens back to the creation when it says, and God looked at everything that he had made and said it was good. This is probably the only time uh, in the Bible where God looks at something that was built by man and says it's good because they were filled with the Spirit of God and they followed God's plan. Um, Hudson Taylor has a great quote. If you know who Hudson Taylor is, he was a, a missionary to China. I believe he started the, the uh, China mission. Uh, and he has the quote, God, God's work done in God's way will never lack God's supply. Um, Chuck Smith often has a, a similar quote that says, where God guides, God provides. They're not biblical. You know, it's not taken out of the Bible, but there's a pattern in Scripture where we see that God has an intention for everything that he commands and everything that he says. And he's going to give us the ability through his spirit to accomplish his work. We see it over and over again in the New Testament. I'll just read a couple verses for you guys. And you can make note of them. Um, in uh, Colossians 1, 9 through 12, it says, For this reason we also... Since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. It's kind of like what we read about Aholiab and Bezalel being filled with the wisdom from the Holy Spirit. That you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Strengthened with all might according to his glorious power for all patience and long-suffering giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. That's Colossians 1, 9 through 12, if you want to write that down. There's another verse which is cool, James 2, 26. It says, For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. So we see that the spirit and the works are the evidence of God. The, the two, they're not separate in that we, you know, we see faith and works oftentimes are fighting against each other because we're talking about man's works versus faith as a gift from God. But the body without the spirit is dead, just as faith without works is dead. And there's that, that link there, the spirit of God empowering his people to do the work of God. That's why we're here. If it was, if we weren't supposed to go about the Lord's work, then we would have just been filled with the Holy Spirit and out of here. But, um, you know, it says in Ephesians 2.10, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And then uh, just it kind of flows into it. Philippians 2.13, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. I... um. I'll read this one last section, sorry. Titus 3, 4 through 8. When the kindness and love of God, our Savior, toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So we see that the work that was done was God's work. It's not the works of righteousness that man can produce. However, he continues and says, This is a faithful saying, and these things I want you to affirm constantly, that those who have believed in God 
should be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable to men. Our good works aren't profitable to God. They're profitable to men. Jesus said, let your light so shine that people will see your good works and glorify your Father that's in heaven. It's not to get glory for ourselves. It's not to earn favor with God. It's to reflect God's character that is in us to the world. And that's why we don't want to always take work out of the equation because oftentimes it's when the Spirit of God is on the scene that the most work gets done. So let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. I pray that um, it would come to life in us and that it would be evidence uh, even tomorrow morning when our feet hit the floor that we would, it would be on our minds and that your word would be on our lips. In Jesus' name, amen.